2: Children of the 80s are back with another tender Christmas film from our childhood. I'm Chris
1: number one.
0: I'm Chris number two.
1: And I'm Patrick. And in the spirit of the holiday season, yippee ki motherfuckers. yippee ki motherfuckers to you all. Very touching.
2: <laughs> and for this episode, we are reviewing 1990s. For some reason, I thought it was earlier than that, but nope, 1990s. Die Hard 2, Die Harder, directed by Rennie Harlan and starring Bruce Willis, Macaulay Culkin's Aunt Bonnie, William Sadler's Bearass, Ass, Dennis Franz, no Bearass ass yet, 80s ass William Atherton and John Amos, who is my kind of ass. But before we begin, a word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by Black & Decker Cordless Drills. At Black & Decker, we pay good money for product placement in a film, but when our scene gets cut out, we have no choice but to sue and move on. Black & Decker's Cordless Drills are hands down the Christmas gift for the John Wayne in every woman's life. The Black & Decker's Cordless Drills, we screw things better than a half-rate director at 20th Century Fox uh who the hell has a summary patrick you've got the summary this time yeah the summary but i have a serious summary for a comedy show let me ask you this before you start though did you basically just take your die hard original summary change a few names and boom die hard two summary
1: no i did not because i didn't write the die hard summary oh okay (laughs) can't help you there i can't uh, lay claim to that all right. In the summer of 1990, Die Hard 2, Die Harder was released. And after people who went in looking for a porn film realized that this is a sequel to 1988's Die Hard, uh, the film became a success. It has been two years since the events of the Nakatomi Tower terrorist attack in Los Angeles. <laughs> you
0: wrote that on purpose, didn't you? <laughs> I did not. It's just like just the King's speech. speech. You kind of jump into it. God.
1: Officer John McLean, the unluckiest son of a bitch in the world, now of the Los Angeles Police Department, is at the dullest international airport in Washington, D.C. on Christmas Eve because that makes a lot of fucking sense. New York cop, now working in L.A., sitting in Washington, D.C. Talking Uh, to a
2: cop that seems like he's from New York, but.
1: Correct. He's awaiting the arrival of his wife, Holly, on her flight from California. While he is waiting, McLean notices two men behaving suspiciously suspiciously in the airport lobby, and not in the gay sort of way, but in a terrorist sort of way. He follows one of the men as he enters the baggage area. Once there, he confronts the man who then tries to kill McLean. The other mystery man shows up to help his partner, and McLean engages in a shootout throughout the entire baggage area. McLean kills one of the men, but the other escapes. During the cleanup, Lane is shocked to learn that the captain of the airport, Carmine Lorenzo, is not going to investigate what the men were doing and is simply going to chalk it up as petty theft. Meanwhile, former U.S. Special Forces Colonel William Stewart, also known as DEATH, and other former members of his unit kill the owner of a church building and establish a base near the airport. They are able to hack into the air traffic control systems via their underground cables. After they access the system, they sever the airport tower's ability to communicate with incoming planes and deactivate all the airport's running lights. Air traffic control now has no way to land any aircraft or to warn them of the terrorist takeover. Stewart's mission is to rescue General Ramon Esperanza, a drug lord and a military dictator of the fictional country of Valverde. Anyone to realize the connections of Valverde?
2: I think it's a, a, a film that the three of us reviewed
0: previously within the last two years. Chris. Oh, I think that was my favorite. El Presidente. Commando. (laughs) Yes. El Presidente.
1: El Presidente. Same same writer. Yep. (laughs) Esperanza (laughs) has been arrested for his crimes and is being extradited to the United States to stand trial for drug trafficking charges. Stewart demands that a Boeing 747 cargo plane be prepped for the terrorists' escape to another country once they have Esperanza. Stewart warns the traffic controllers not to interfere or try to restore their power and control. With his wife on an approaching plane with too little fuel to be directed elsewhere, McLean intervenes and tries to stop the terrorists. Not willing to give in to the terrorists, Dulles Communications Director Leslie Barnes comes up with a plan to use an unfinished antenna array to communicate with the planes in the air. The airport SWAT team escorts him to the area of the airport that is still under construction. They're ambushed by a T-1000 who kills all the members of the SWAT team and are about to kill Barnes until the timely arrival of McLean. McLean kills all of Stewart's team and saves Barnes, but the array is blown up, cutting off that option. However, Stewart is upset about losing some of his men, so he retaliates by recalibrating the instrument landing system and impersonates an air traffic controller to crash a British airliner, killing everyone on board. Uh, With the crashing of a plane, the military is called in to assist. The U.S. Army Special Forces is led by Major Grant, who's always up for good times, who is one of Stewart's former soldiers. Grant excludes McLean from all the military planning. McLean befriends and relies on the airport's janitor, Marvin, to try to get access to the conference room to stay in the loop. But he finds that Marvin has one of the mercenaries' two-way radios that still has the code typed in. With the radio, McLean can overhear all of Stewart's transmissions. Over the radio, McLean hears that Esperanza has killed his captors and the pilot on the plane carrying him and needs an emergency landing. McLean gets to Esperanza's plane on the snowy runway before Stewart's henchmen. He wounds the dictator, but when Stewart and his men arrive, McLean is forced to retreat to the cockpit of the plane. The terrorists shoot out the windows of the cockpit and begin lobbing grenades in with McLean. The detective straps himself into the pilot seat and ejects himself just before the grenades destroy the entire plane. McLean lands safely, a short distance away from Stewart and his men, who allow McLean to leave alive. Some lucky son of a bitch he is, huh? When McLean returns to the airport, Barnes Barnes tells him that he thinks he knows where the terrorists are operating from. He and McLean go to the church, and when McLean is attacked by one of the terrorists, Barnes calls for the troops. Grant and his men arrive. They engage in a firefight with Stewart's men. During the battle, Stewart's men escape out the back on snowmobiles. McLean pursues them, but soon discovers that the mercenaries' guns are loaded with blanks. McLean concludes that Grant and his men are in cahoots with Stewart. When McLean returns to the airport again, he gets Lorenzo to finally do something. The police captain organizes his limited men to intercept and stop the Boeing 747 from taking off. On board Holly's flight, Her plane is preparing to make a crash landing as they are out of fuel. Her situation has only been made worse by reporter Richard Thornburg, the asshole reporter from the first Die Hard film, making exaggerated reports from the plane's bathroom, which has caused panic on the plane and at the airport. McLean gets a ride on a news helicopter that drops him on the wing of the taxing 747. He uses his jacket to jam the wing of the plane and prevent the terrorists from taking off, Grant comes out onto the wing and the two men fight, with McLean winning when he causes Grant to fall into the jet engine. Next, Stuart. The jet engine's okay, though. Correct. Yeah, a man
2: goes through the jet engine. It's okay.
1: No problem. No problem. Next, Stuart fights McLean, causing McLean to fall from the plane, but not before he pulls the lever to dump the fuel from the wing. Once on the ground, McLean uses his lighter to light the fuel, which backtracks to the taxing plane and blows up the plane, Esperanza, Stewart, and all his men. The pilots of Holly's plane are now able to see the runway due to the burning jet fuel, and they safely land their plane. McLean finds his wife as she gets off her plane, and the two embrace. A happy ending to another McLean family Christmas.
2: What cracks me up about that last scene is not only did their plane land, but every subsequent other plane in the air landed immediately behind it without them taxing out of the fucking way and all the others just skidding in and miraculously not hitting the main plane
0: well and not right. hitting the original plane that blew up on the runway no on a snow-covered runway by the way <laughs> fucking hollywood magic <laughs> with a with a like a drain grate in the middle of it
2: patrick after that wonderful summary tell me this was number one in the theaters uh, for the whole summer?
1: Not for the whole summer. This was the summer of Ghost. So that did that, that, that kind of predominated the summer. So Die Hard 2, Die Harder was released on July 6, 1990, the same day as Jetsons, the movie, uh, the same month as Ghost, The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, also directed by Renny Harlan, the same director of this film, Arachnophobia, Quick Change, Presumed Innocent, and Chris's all-time favorite film, Problem Child. Uh, was made on a budget of $70 million, grossed uh, over $117 million in the United States, uh, over $240 million worldwide. It was the eighth highest grossing film of 1990, right behind Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Hunt for Red October, and Total Recall, and right in front of Dick Tracy, Kindergarten Cop, and Back to the Future Part Three. Uh, it was known at the time that it had the, uh, talking about the word fuck, was used 60 times in the film, and almost the film almost received an NC-17 rating <laughs> because of the use of that. Maxim Magazine has ranked the plane crash in the film as the number two greatest plane crash in film history.
2: What's number I don't one? Know. I don't know. If it's not Airplane, uh, well, that's a bullshit yeah. list, Maxim.
1: It was the second highest grossing domes- de- diehard film domestically right behind... Uh, Live Free or Die Hard, which came out in the early two thousand. It was the second lowest grossing Die Hard film worldwide, if you take in the worldwide gross, only uh, beating out the first Die Hard film, which actually was the lowest grossing worldwide. Was based on Walter... I can't... Shit, I can't even read my handwriting. Groening? I think it's we- Weyer's uh well alterware's 1987 book called 58 minutes which has a completely different lead character that they just took the concept and vague concept of it and threw in john McClane as the lead character uh and that's and essentially that's what they did also with the first diehard film after this they i think they just fucking used a phone book and said well where is it going to happen this plane uh, uh new york okay Rotten Tomatoes has it at 69% critics and 70% audience. And that is the numbers on Die Hard. So Chris G., is this your favorite Christmas movie of all time?
0: It's got to be right up there with uh, a very commando Christmas. You know, I just, uh, watching it the other night. So going into it, I, I remembered the movie. I've seen bits and pieces of it through the years. And I saw it in the theaters when it came out and I remember it as being a a you know, pretty good typical sequel and everything so i i went into it just wanting to watch it as just being a a fun sequel no expectations knowing what it was and everything and then i watched it and realized just how bad it really was and um yeah it just was not uh i just i i, I kind of half enjoyed it and, you know i like victory you know more than that when we did the <laughs> victory podcast because so i went into it with the exact same expectation Only this one was a little bit of a letdown.
2: Man, I I don't ever remember liking this film, but Summer Blockbuster, Patrick, did you see this in the theater?
1: Yes, I saw it in the theaters. This was one of the big movies of 1990. I was working in the movie theater when it came out. Unfortunately, it didn't come out to my theater. I had fucking Ghost. That fucking sucked. (laughs) I hated that movie. People love that film, though. I don't get it. I know it, it was it was a sleeper hit, but we we did not receive we got Total Recall and we got Ghost. We did have Jetsons the movie. I do remember that one coming out. We had Adventures of Ford Fairlane, um, but we did not get a lot of the big uh, action films of that summer. So I had to go to a different theater to see Die Hard. But I saw it open night. I, it was it was one I was looking forward to. I loved the first Die Hard movie. I actually really enjoyed this film uh, at the time. Uh, As I have aged and become a little bit more of a connoisseur of films, it obviously doesn't stand up nearly as well, but I still do enjoy it as compared to the remainder of the Die Hard films, which got progressively worse and worse as they went on.
2: Chris, was Ghost where you started your hobby of pottery by any
0: chance? I'm going to be a moment of full disclosure. I still have never seen Ghost. Oh. I think I'm one of the four. Just not my kind of movie. So I I have yet to see it. Although I did like the um, the recreation in um, Naked Gun 2. That yeah. must be way inside of a joke for, no, for any I, of our I, listeners I, out there to see if they can. You guys get it, but it's Naked Naked Gun. Is it Naked Gun 2 and a half or is it 33 and a third? Might be 33 and a third. Two. No, two and a half, I think, was, yeah, because Priscilla wasn't in 33 and a third, except at yeah, the was. very beginning.
1: Yeah, she was, well, she was in it. She wasn't in it very much. She wasn't a yeah. main character. Maybe you're right. Maybe it was two and a half. I think it was. Mm-hmm.
2: Fun fact, O.J. in that film was the reason why there was a ghost. Yeah. Too soon? <laughs> nah. Oh, okay. Um. So I remember seeing this once. I don't. I don't think I really liked it then I was disappointed and I really liked the first diehard and after watching it, it was pretty rough for me to get, get through this one. But I think this was more because just the plot holes, it, uh, it was hard for me to suspend my, uh, my belief in just some common sense. Did I, either of you, when you're watching this, did, did the story plot holes just bug you? Like I'm thinking, this is Washington D.C., and they wait t- how long to get a hold of the government? Uh, how would the government just be sitting around on their butts this whole time? I feel like
0: they would. Well, have, and would they land the plane at a you know a commercial airport at Dulles?
2: No, there there's a nearby airport in Baltimore. They could have landed there. Uh, there was just so many plot holes. I'm thinking, all right, just let let them have their their plane. And as soon as it gets up in the air, they've got no hostages, blow it out of the sky, tell the everybody on the news that um, it crashed, and that's the end of it. But did either of you really – Did is it just me, or were the plot holes really glaring in this one? Patrick?
1: It, it, well, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's, it's weird that they choose Washington, D.C. as kind of the central point for this film because there are so many – other airports within an hour easily within an hour of that and they 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 kind of set it up as there's such a bad storm that everything is being sent to them uh from all these other airports but that's got to be that would be a bigger news story is the huge fucking storm that's sending everybody to one fucking airport considering there's at least two airports that i know of in washington dc reagan is not very far away and then as you said bwi in baltimore is not that far away either so it, it it doesn't make a lot of sense that oh okay we're we're kind of tightened down because it seems like everybody fairly early on realizes hey we got an issue and that you would think that uh, air traffic control from the other airports yeah. <laughs> that are not being taken over who are like mere minutes away as far as flight time couldn't commute, wouldn't be able to communicate with uh, the, the the airplanes and say, hey, because that's basically what happens as they cross as they cross the United States, as they get handed off from one, you know, one uh, air traffic control to another to make sure that they don't run into other planes as they're crossing the United States. So it, Yes, there's there's a major suspension of disbelief just and, and merely also from the fact that I kind of made fun of it is. Why the fuck in Washington, D.C., other than you needed cold weather for this fucking movie? And th- th- that seemed kind of a stretch to me from the get go. It's like, you know, you know, he's from New York. She moved to Los Angeles. Let's take it to a third different alternative and just really ridiculous. It's almost almost as bad as John McLean in Russia for the last fucking movie. That one was really
0: atrocious. Didn't see it. I think they put it in Washington, D.C. just because they had the whole political you know, drug Lord prisoner coming in and, you know, the U S was bringing him in. That's why I was trying to figure out why would they land him at a commercial airport? They would take him to a military base instead for the handoff. But yeah, I would it's, think it's,
2: even it's, in Texas, get it close to the border.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, they, um, along what Patrick was saying that you, well, both of you are saying you can't really, sus- you could suspend disbelief in the first one because that one to me, it was a cleverly written movie. It had a bit more sophistication. It had a great villain, um, you know, to whereas this guy, he was just kind of more, you know, your typical run of the mill asshole villain. Um, and it was just more of a Schwarzenegger type action movie. It took McClane, and instead of making him be just the regular guy, the regular cop, you know, in over his head that everybody could identify with, it made him that superhuman cop. You know, it made him the if Schwarzenegger or Steven Seagal or one of those guys had played it. And so, it was just, it was just all right. Let's just put them in these situations, let them make some wisecracks and and shoot some people. So it didn't have that sophistication that the first one did. So you couldn't buy into, you couldn't buy into it. You know, you couldn't suspend your your. It just didn't get, allow you that opportunity to to suspend your disbelief in it because it was just so you know, cookie cutter from the get go. Everything fell into place just perfectly. You know. when they're fighting it out in the uh, baggage area okay the golf cubs golf clubs just happen to go by and he grabs a golf club and then there's a bicycle that happens to be there i mean everything was just conveniently there and and it it yeah it just took mclean from being a regular guy into being a superhuman
2: now did did bruce willis's version in this film um work for you you know the first one, they didn't really want to ad-lib, but it worked so well in the first one. They, they're like, go ahead, Bruce, ad-lib in this one. Did it work for you? Did you even notice? Did you care,
0: Chris? Didn't notice, didn't care.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there are certain ad-libs in the film that
0: um, I I thought
1: did okay. You know, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. I thought was a little fucking hokey. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> it, <laughs> And,
0: she, and she's been sitting there listening to him talk about his wife for the last five minutes, and then, you know, she's still hitting on him, and he has to show her the ring.
1: Well, in addition to that, it's just like, wow, that you just threw out a joke that was so fucking dated. <laughs> How many people get that joke from Joe Friday from Dragnet in the '60s? <laughs> you know? Well,
2: actually, this was the time where Tom Hanks remade it, so maybe a little fresh in
1: the. 19- 1988. Yeah. So two years before. And that wasn't that big of a film that I think that was, that really, really brought that, that back into the, the zeitgeist.
0: People say. Well, and this, this film was missing the Virgin Connie Swales. So,
1: yeah. Correct. That's true. She,
0: (laughs) that, that, that was distinctly
1: lacking. It's a lot of pagans and the Virgin Connie Swales. So,
0: what was it? People Against Goodness and what the hell normalcy, normalcy.
2: yeah
0: wait, wait tell me how much better this movie would have been though if Dabney Coleman were in here somewhere well somewhere. every
2: film
1: better with <laughs>
0: that,
2: that, that, that's what I was gonna say Dabney would have made this a million bucks as that air traffic controller <laughs> amen
1: yeah you know taking my nudie magazine you know so that's his fucking list from that film <laughs> but anyways I digress uh it's <laughs> Uh, it's the, the, I, you know, it's, I like Bruce Willis. I still liked him in this. Um, I I like him is this character. Uh, he, I, I, I don't think he reached super, superhuman links at this film, even yet. Uh, although he's getting close to it, I still think of him as a very kind of the, the man against, you know, the one man who stands against everyone by the next film. I think, yeah, he's, he's become a superhuman character who's like, uh, I've got metal embedded in my arm and I'm pulling it out so that I can take <laughs> a lot shit like that. <laughs> well, in,
2: in the first film he gets shot. And then after that, he's still okay. It seems like it heals this one. He gets stabbed in the shoulder. And after that, it, uh,
1: it heals. So he's still got some superhuman qualities. He does, but it's, I mean, as as the series progresses, that they just keep taking it, upping the ante over and over again. I mean, like th- that's the th- that was one of the things in the third one. By the fourth one, I'm trying to remember that that's the live free or die hard when, you know, he's being chased by a jet plane trying to blow him up, and he's driving on an <laughs> expressway and shit like that. I'm going, oh my god, this is just so ridiculous. Oh, and oh by the way, by then he learns how to fly. He hates to fly. But by the third or fourth film, he's now he's a pilot. It's like the
2: Fast and the Furious. Change yeah. it all, all the way around.
1: Yeah, at least they haven't taken him to space yet. Yeah. yeah,
2: you know one of the things I did like though was he the the main bad guy Colonel Stewart. He was a colonel, right? Correct. Stewart kicked his ass on the plane. I mean, even though Bruce saved the day, Stewart Crody kid his ass to death on that thing. And I did appreciate the fact that, uh, I think even more so than the first film, he didn't really I win a whole lot of
0: fights. I just appreciated the fact that Colonel Stewart did it with his clothes on. Let me tell you, this film had
2: a lot of ass in it. really did.
0: <laughs> it was a little breezy on that wing,
1: so it's it would be hard for him to do that.
2: Well, yeah, that's that's true. And, and it's Winter. What about that fucking wing? Do you think that the hydraulics on that wing, uh, a little firefighter's jacket would mess with it like that, that it couldn't take off? I honestly
1: have no idea.
2: I have no idea about aviation, <laughs> but i i was sitting there. I'm like,
1: well, it's hydraulics, but it is jammed in the corner, so I don't know. I—I I, I would presume probably not, because those are pretty thick jackets. If that—if it, if it can't—if they can't uh, retract the wing, um, but. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know for sure. Uh, I, that is an area I'm going, okay, I'll suspend my disbelief there because I don't know any different.
0: Could have just raised the aileron and, or the flap and it would have come out on its own, you know, because if, if it's so wedged in there that they can't lower the flap and then Colonel Stewart goes and just rips it out. You know, that's, that's all part of what I was saying yeah. about opposite what, direction and wind. Opposite.
2: Is that what you're saying? Yeah.
0: I guess, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna just lump that in with all the other uh, plot holes.
1: All right, the film has tremendous plot holes, and ask you just to gloss over them very, very briefly, and, and and not think about them in any way, shape, or form, including the fact that security of it, the 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 uh, wiring for air traffic control is going to go across private property, and they wouldn't have that secured so that nobody could <laughs> get access that. And cause problems for a major airport in the nation's capital.
0: Now, can, can we get into that whole thing about the runways and the cabling and all that stuff? Because I had a few observations. Praises? Okay. Is that what you're going to say? Yeah, I want to know why. Why if the uh, terrorists, if the they said that the runway, uh, the air traffic control said that both the runway lights were on the same grid as the control tower, why didn't they just take the control tower down as well so that the control tower couldn't even communicate with the planes? I and mean, they go to all the trouble to take out the runway but leave the control tower still relatively usable. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, again, I'm trying I, – I think it's kind of hideous that I'm trying to uh, put some analy- you know analysis or something on this movie, but – I mean, seriously, think about it. They could have taken out the whole tower and everything uh, from a communication standpoint.
1: Well, you know, why even communicate with
0: the tower at all? Exactly. You know, they could have bypassed them.
1: Yeah, it's just like, hey, we're here to announce our intention of what we're going to do, <laughs> mainly so that I can play Captain Exposition, or in this case, Colonel Exposition, and tell you to give the audience a preview of what the the entire plot of this film is, uh, because you didn't need the assistance of the tower. You didn't need them to do anything. And you anticipated that they were going to try to take action to regain control of their systems and you countered against it. So why, why even communicate with them at all, you know, and, and, and just, go about your business and probably it, it left them a little bit more blind uh, so that they, they didn't know exactly what you're going to do. Although I'm sure they would all presume you're going to go after the, you know, the, the general, um, because of the political reasons.
0: Well, and why, when the tower does get that little bit of communications, why don't they just tell all the planes, go to your alternate airport, alternate airports, problem solved. I, if, I, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs>
1: just Patrick, you should examine this i'm 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 presuming because that happens late when they they use the outer beacon to communicate with them that they they do say that some of some of them have gone some of them went to different airports but then there's some nearby but it's once again it still doesn't explain that there are so many airports on the eastern seaboard of this nation within flying time within probably minutes of each other why aren't you going there because I can't imagine why Reagan would be so overloaded or uh, snowed over, but Dulles wouldn't be. I mean, they're as I said yeah. within flying minutes of each other. The, the weather wouldn't be that severe. Go, you know, from one place to another, and VWI is not that far. Although I think they do mention Baltimore sent is diverting planes to them.
0: Well, and if you're if you're the pilot of one of the planes and you're down to fumes or getting close to fumes, and you can't communicate with the tower you're diverting to an alternate airport on your own you're not waiting correct. for permission and correct can the planes talk to each other?
2: How about the one that uh, yeah. they were able to get a hold of? can they then radio yeah. the the next one that they can't get a hold of and so forth and say, hey guys, we got an issue. New
0: yeah, York City's so
2: not even that far away.
0: Yeah I'm so I'm taking flying lessons right now obviously in nothing like that just in a little Cessna. But yeah, we're always talking to other planes and you just have to change frequ- you know, to whatever frequency you want to go to. Every piece of air space has their own frequency. And so when we leave like our little part of the world, we just switch over to the next frequency and start talking to them. And you don't need to be handed off by a control tower to do that.
2: Are those like well, CB radios, by the way, where you got Kurt Russell screaming into the thing like uh, <laughs> Big Trouble in Little China?
0: No, you do have those big uh, brick cell phones, though. That that works really well. Okay.
2: <laughs>
1: Sorry, well, Patrick, I cut it, you off. Let alone, no, no. Well, let alone the fact that when a plane crashes and explodes on the yes. ground, that no one app. Hey, guys, you see that burning wreckage down there? Here, <laughs> the airport? Is, Let's not go there. You? Well, no, no. I'm sure that has nothing to do with where we may land. And that has that was a lot of flames for a plane without fuel, yeah. <laughs> well, the British are very flammable
2: <laughs> uh let's talk about the actual bad guys in this film. I know it's kind of bad to con to compare to the first one, but what did you think of the baddies in this one as compared to the first one? It's kind of hard to to beat Hans we had what was uh what was Stuart's name? William Sadler, Sadler. And then we yeah. also had um John Amos. I like John Amos oh, yes. a lot, but uh he was he was Sergeant Grant. I, I forget what his rank was. Sergeant Grant. And he trained Stuart and they're the bad guys. Shocker. Um what'd you guys
1: think of them uh in this film, Patrick? Uh you know, there was no way anybody's was going to compete with Alan Rickman, uh, but I thought they were serviceable in their roles. You know, the, you know, William Sadler doesn't really have a confrontation with McLean until the last portion of it. And John Amos is the, is the, it's, it's the, it's the, um, <laughs> oh shit. It, it's, it, it, you know, it's the, the switch, the unexpected, you know, that, the twist in the film, if if you will, uh, to, to have him be a member of the bad guys, even though they go out of the way for him to be kind of abrasive towards McLean for a little bit. And then he suddenly becomes friendly at which is, that's actually the point where I'm like, I don't trust this guy. The first time I saw this when he became friendly, it's like, why would they change the character? You know, once again, being a connoisseur of films, you do something for a reason. This guy was an asshole to McLean before now he's suddenly being nice. There's a reason you're doing that. You're trying to throw the audience off or something. And I immediately thought, okay, he's on. He's on a, um, Stewart's team, if you will. Uh, but uh, you know, they they were serviceable. I mean, I, I think that eventually, as I said, the, the in the later film series, the 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 villains get progressively worse and worse, um, and until I can't honestly can't fucking even remember who the villain was for the a uh, good day to die hard the last one in russia uh, that one was just ridiculous and so forgettable and you've uh, seen but, them all right all of the Die Hard. i've seen them all i own them all they're all sitting on my shelf as part of a set but uh, you know i i really i i generally enjoy the first three i think they're decent films although the first one is a classic this one is less uh, so and the third one even less than that the fourth film is is an extremely flawed film and has many, many problems. But I like the villain, Tim- Timothy Timothy, Olive plays the villain in that one. And I really enjoyed that. The fifth film was just it, it was just a horror. It was an abortion of a fucking sequel. So it's just I, I, I don't even understand why they thought that was going to be a decent diehard film. It, it just and, and Bruce Willis seems to be sleepwalking through it. The role he it seems utterly bored in his performance in it.
2: Well, he he. I don't know when uh, his dementia or whatever that diagnosis was that was starting to affect him. So maybe when he made this film, that's
1: part of it. This film being Die Hard Two or A Good Day to Die or, <laughs> the, yeah. the
2: last one. No, I, <laughs> it, this this is typical late
1: '80s, early '90s Bruce Willis. I mean, but, but. yeah, I mean Bruce Willis was one of my favorite actors around this time frame. I really enjoyed him in a lot of things, and. and you know, I, I saw a, a film with Bruce Willis in it because Bruce Willis in it in, in it. And I had a lot of respect for Bruce Willis. I you know, like I think like in countries and uh, uh, as underappreciated dramatic performance by him back in the day, I like the fact that he did, you know, these little walk on parts in other films like mortal thoughts or Billy Bathgate, where he didn't necessarily need to get major booking um, a few years after this. Nobody's Fool with Robert, or not Robert De Niro, um, Newman is a great film, and he has a major role in it, but is not built. You know, it's it, he's just. I, I think he was a, an actor's actor who liked to do that. Now, I think by the 2000s, he became Bruce Willis, the action star after Six Sense and Armageddon and all that shit, and just started. I'm going to do things for paychecks, and then it, obviously the the product started to decline quite dramatically at, at that point. He peaked and at
2: uh, Fifth Element for me. Uh, Chris, did you want to comment on the bad guys? I kind of overstepped your...
0: Yeah, no, I think Patrick said it all. I think he nailed it. No one's going to... To me, Hans Gruber is one of the best, you know, villains ever. I think that was just an excellent, excellent villain and an excellent portrayal. These, as I said earlier, are just more of your typical run-of-the-mill. It could be, you know, pick any action figure from any action movie and make them the bad guy, and boom, there you go. I think... I think Sadler and Amos both did, you know, respectable jobs with what they had to work with. They played the parts well, and that was about it. But um, I wanted to go back to what Patrick had said about Bruce Willis. I was a big Bruce Willis fan as well. I would go see a movie just because he was in it. And, you know, it got me to see the the first half of Hudson Hawk, at least, before my (laughs) wife and I said, all right, we're about, I'll never forget the the moment we walked out was the scene where Andy McDowell turns and, says something to the effect of, you know, she looks up at the cross or something and says, oh, dear Lord, help me. And Bonnie and I were like, yeah, that's enough. I, we've, we've had about enough of this. All but, he wanted uh, no. in
2: that film was a cappuccino. And he yeah, had to go through all, all this did. shit.
0: He sang well. He had a nice voice. Um, but, but uh, yeah, I'd go see a movie because Bruce Willis was in it. I thought he was great. Um, surprisingly... I liked the third one with Jeremy Irons better than I liked this one. I thought Jeremy Irons was a better bad guy and a little bit more, had a little more substance to him than, than William Sadler did. I think this one had the more of the typical, or I don't know if it's typical, but they had the twist when John Amos flips and you realize, okay, he's a bad guy, but for the duration of the movie, you know, you do, you had that interaction back and forth with Jeremy Irons and, and Bruce Willis and, I thought the third one, uh, what, what was that one? That was, uh, That wasn't. what was the third one was called? Was that with the Vengeance? Die with Hard the vengeance. with the Vengeance. Yeah, I like that one better than this one, actually. Yeah. See, but that's just a
1: repeat of the first film. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it's a repeat. It, they throw it in is that, oh, you know, he's a terrorist and he wants to get revenge against McClane, but he's just trying to steal money like Hans Gruber did. And it, that that's where that one to me was just like, th- at least this is such distinctly different. These are terrorists for terrorists sake i mean there are actually some political motivations for this uh, which is very very different from both one and three
0: mm-hmm.
2: patrick i'm trying to remember did you like uh, bruce willis or i should say the film death becomes her that he was in i think you did not like that film
1: not really i mean i didn't i've seen it but it's it's not a particularly one of my favorites i mean not everything that he crapped out during the 90s was good there was mm-hmm. there was some crap i don't think the fifth element is a great film it's it's got some great special effects and it's a little quirky and i i, I enjoyed the quirkiness of it but it's not one that i go back and revisit armageddon uh, you know uh, chris g and i have you know we reviewed deep impact and we kind of half asked reviewed armageddon at the same time um but, It it had many, many problems, but it was generally just a popcorn film, much like this. I mean, it was just a popcorn film during the summer that I enjoyed
0: watching. I enjoyed Armageddon much better than this, but to backtrack just a step, how bad was Deep Impact that I actually had to defend a Michael Bay movie? Okay. (laughs) Deep Impact to me was. I would never defend. The Deep Impact was so bad to me that I actually had to commend Michael Bay for a movie and and uh that's how bad Deep Impact was. Yeah, I I uh, once again I will say Deep Impact is a
1: decent film. It, it it's flawed uh much like this film, but it's uh, I still enjoy the film. It's not one I revisit a lot. I definitely see Armageddon much more more often because that's much that's more of a thrill ride. That's like riding a roller coaster you know, as rather than the Hall of Presidents of <laughs> deep, deep Impact.
0: <laughs> so if you had to watch either Deep Impact or Die Hard 2, which is it? Die Hard 2. Okay. I, I watch Die
1: Hard 2 pretty much every Christmas uh, still. This is a, one of the Christmas films that, you know, my my, my kids watch a lot of Christmas movies and, then, and they start in October. So this is one we get around to. Now, Die Hard gets watched a couple times during the Christmas holidays. This gets watched once. You know, and the, as far as my kids know, this is where the Die Hard series ended. <laughs> They've never seen it again. <laughs> <at> the <end. laughs> well,
0: so, then, so then based on what you're saying, happily ever after. <laughs> which is more of a Christmas movie, Die Hard or Die Hard 2? Die Hard. Die Hard. I will stay with Die Hard. This one very much is just
1: set at Christmas time and they abandon that Christmas Christmas motif real real quickly. Yeah. The Christmas motif is carried throughout Die Hard with the Christmas tree and the Christmas party um and the oh ho ho now I have a machine gun. There's just more to it than this. This one they just kind of half-ass reference it's it's the holiday season, it's Christmas. And and, and it, even one of the last lines, you know, it's Christmas, you know, it's it's you know this one is not as christmas related but like lethal weapon uh which i also watch at christmas time not with the kids
2: (laughs) (laughs) now there's a big cell phone in that film so basically
0: you you just like you like to see shit get blown up around christmas is what you're saying
1: yeah i i i like to i get tired of the 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 kind of the Nostalgia type Christmas movies, which I do watch as well. It's a Wonderful Life and things like that. And I like to every once in a while break out and go see something like, you know, either one of these or uh, Bad Santa, something that kind of breaks the mold of your traditional Christmas film.
2: Do you ever watch the original Black Christmas, Patrick? No. Wow. That, that's <laughs> I the one so that I turned,
1: like. I, I was so turned off by the uh, twenty. I think it was 2019. Yeah, 2019, which was, uh, my understanding, has nothing to do with, it's not even a remake of it. In addition to that, I've seen far too many of the Silent Night, Deadly Night films from the 80s to ever watch another fucking Christmas horror film. It just doesn't work for me. A horror film that takes place at Christmas time, as much as I sit here and bitch and say, hey, I like something different, the horror element just doesn't work so much and always just comes off as bad.
2: You might like the first one. Lois Lane is a drunk in the first one. A little stretch right, Lois for Margo.
0: Is a drunk. Yeah, <laughs> her entire life. Yeah, I just say she's pulling off of reality.
2: Anybody else you want to talk about in this one? We're starting to ramble.
0: I some good cameos. Go well, not so much cameos, but she had some good John Leguizamo and uh, Robert Patrick. Okay. I forgot. They okay. Were right. Yes. Yeah. Okay.
1: Those were good cameos. I thought you were going to go with uh, Reginald DelVal Johnson and uh, William Atherton. It's like, why the fuck are they in this fucking movie? uh, Twinkie product placement. Yeah. Yeah. There was no need for them. I mean, it was like a use. They were useless scenes and useless characters for the course of this film. Other than you're trying to recapture the magic of the first one. Is I, I was good with Holly being in jeopardy because the planes run out of fuel in the plane. I didn't need the asshole reporter continuing to be an asshole reporter causing a panic in the at the airport, which really didn't affect anything as far as the story. Might even have saved lives because people got the fuck out of the goddamn <laughs> airport before a plane crashed into it.
0: And how about the whole thing with the reporter and everything? I,
1: I didn't really need it. I, you know, to me, I thought it was like, they're throwing this in a social commentary of, you know, reporters, you know, being kind of, uh, uh, you know,
0: intrusive pain in the ass. Yeah. And which uh, obviously, and they are,
1: well, I'm, I'm sure they are, but, uh, that, you know, obviously Bruce Willis was probably explaining, you know, or experiencing that at the time being married to, uh, Demi Moore and everything like that. But, uh, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's, It was a very, very vague social commentary. You know, it was like, okay, here's a social commentary. Moving on, now we're going to have explosions.
0: (laughs) Speaking of which, what did you guys think of the final scene, the big, you know, ending, the plane blowing up and all that, and how that happened?
2: I was so annoyed with the fact that the engine was fine after John Amos went through it. You couldn't get past that. I couldn't get past that. And I honestly don't think that the fuel would burn like that or, or if it would even burn, because I think that they have different grades to prevent just that exact thing. Am I, am I making that up? Am I lying? I don't know. Well,
0: they have different uh, grades. Um, yeah, I don't think it burns just openly like that. I think when it's, you know, compressed, when it's, uh, um, in the wing and everything, then it, you know, it's combustible.
1: Well, I- I will say because I distinctly remember when I saw this, and I, you know, I and I just I know I said I saw it on opening night. I actually didn't see it on opening night. I saw it the night before it opened because because I was working the theater. We had a theater theater crowd watching it at midnight, um, and because that's what we did back then at at, the, at, a, at a fellow theater, um, and everybody cheered when that played up, and it, so I, I think it played well in its time. And to be honest with you, my kids get a little—they get kind of thrilled. Yeah. They get more excited about that than McLean jumping off Nakatomi Tower <laughs> right as the explosion is going off. They—they—they they, they, they like the the ending of that, that one more than the first one. Um, but you know, I, I think it plays—I I think it plays pretty well. It's a nice callback too with Yippee kai Motherfucker yeah. and then throwing the lighter down. Um, although it's like, they didn't hear you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, and, and, and and that fuel was draining out in both directions. So even though the flames went forward, they would have gone backwards over the top of them too. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, no, everyone, you said is exactly the same thing. I went and saw the movie with a bunch of my friends too, and they just all thought that was awesome. When the flame, you know, kind of left the ground and went up in the air and met the plane in the air and blew it up, it was like, "Oh my god, that was so cool." That was a, it. You're right. It played well. It, it 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 gave it a good, you know, bang for an ending.
2: I think I watched Airplane too many times. I couldn't take it seriously. I'm waiting for the autopilot to give somebody a BJ.
0: <laughs> you needed Ted Stryker to land the plane, huh?
2: Get that drinking problem going. Do you guys like uh, Dennis Franz's Carmine Lorenzo? I, I felt like he was over the top uh, pain in the ass in this
1: one. Like they tried too hard with him.
0: Yeah, all well, he did was bitch.
1: Well, but I guess this is how I see Dennis Franz. He plays the same fucking character in every fucking movie. Just a little bit. This one, he's kind of a stupid asshole. But when he's in NYPD Blue, he was you know kind of a smarter asshole. But he still played the same... It was within this very small wheelhouse
2: he's not as good of an asshole as william atherton even though i didn't like william in this one all right let's go around the table i think we've talked this one long enough uh after all said and done do you think this film stands the test of time got any last final snarky comments to make about it uh chris g we'll go with you first
0: No, it doesn't stand the test of time. I was hoping it would, but it didn't. And uh, I think we're all snarked out. At least I am.
1: (laughs) Patrick. Uh, I disagree. I think the film still stands the test of time. It's still a popcorn film. Nope. It's a popcorn film. I still watch this at least annually, maybe semi-annually every once in a while. Once, you know, once a while, I may skip it uh, during the holiday season just because we're busy, but yeah, I I still enjoyed watching it. Um, I I will tell you something that I hadn't forgot to comment. I hate the fucking title. I fucking hate Die Hard. I'm like, really, really. You guys couldn't just leave it with Die Hard two. You had to add something to it, and that and that's the best you could fucking come up with. It was ah, I I, I hate that title. Just it that to me, almost uh, would create a situation where I wouldn't go see a film, but for Bruce Willis in the nineteen nineties.
2: I disliked this film when I saw it originally. I disliked it again. I don't know. Does that mean it stands the test of time? It's the same crap as <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I'll say just for that, it stands the test of time because it's the it's the exact same film that I remember. And uh, this is not this is not a great film for me. And I do like a lot of Bruce Willis films. I do like Death Becomes Her, even though Patrick does not. I love the whole Nine Yards. I, in many ways i think bruce uh is better comedically than an action star uh to be honest
0: yeah i liked him in blind date
2: um he, he he's he's got great comedic timing uh as long as he's not with uh what's her face from moonlighting why am i blanking on her name sybil shepherd sybil
1: oh i loved i loved moonlighting in the 80s that's i mean obviously that's why i, I first was introduced to bruce wills so that's I that caused me to like him as an actor, and caused me to like. Oh, that's where I saw Blind Date. That's where I saw Sunset. That's where I saw In Country, Die Hard, and just had a series of films that I just watched him. That's why I went and saw Look Who's Talking. Who's not? He's not actually in it. He just talks throughout. So it's, and that's a piece of shit film.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he, he, you know, that that's kind of Bruce's uh, career. I think I think that he has really great films, and then he'll have some really bad films. And there's tends to maybe not be any in between for my taste, but uh, I think overall his fi- his great films outweigh the bad films, uh, other than the last few years. But I guess we kind of know now why he was making just about anything he could these last few
1: years. Yeah. Well, no, I don't know if that's I, I, not to condemn Bruce Willis. I don't know if that's why he was making a lot of substandard action films and just taking paychecks in the last few years i I, he just wasn't as bankable of a box office star any longer and had grown to have a reputation of being just a difficult motherfucker to work with and you know as far as making demands on scripts and co-stars and and belittling directors on sets that people just didn't end up wanting to work with him. And I, I don't know if that anything has anything to do with his physical condition. It has everything to do with his character potentially, but because I am not surprised to hear, Hey, Bruce Willis, did you know that he's an asshole in real life? Yeah. I kind of would expect that, you know, <laughs> just, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I like a lot of his films and I think he's got, he is not one who's got, one or two good films. He's got a long list of good films that I really, really do like and enjoy and own. And then he made some unbelievable crap uh, during that same time frame. A lot of it coming in the last years before he retired, uh, unfortunately. But, you know, it, every once in a while, he would pop up with something. And, and you know, uh, for every um, color of night, there's a Pulp Fiction, you know. Uh, and, you know, for um breakfast of champions and i'm reaching deep there if you guys know what fucking movie i'm talking about there there's Mm -hmm. there's there's an armageddon you know which has a lot of the same fucking actors who hopped over to do that film with him Uh, so it's you know there there's uh, he makes some decent popcorn films and he has a distinctive type of character to play and i liked him a lot of things and i can continue to do like him he's going to be one of those actors that I'm going to treasure uh, for, you know, probably for the rest of my life of the, his, his film catalog that I revisit on a frequent basis, and including this movie, Chris G and Chris H guys being fucking dismissive of Die Hard to on un- the on un- fucking American. This if is, you uh, had to
0: rate, I'm curious if you had to rate your top three Bruce Willis, Miller, Bruce Willis movies where he was the lead, not like Pulp Fiction or something, what would they be? Just curious. Die Hard on top, mm-hmm. yeah. All
1: right. Ooh, because I, I, Pulp Fiction was why I would throw in number two until you qualified it.
0: Yeah, because um, he's just you know he's. he's, not, he's not going for the yet. last Boy Scout. I, I, uh,
1: well, I like the Last Boy Scout, but I don't know if I'd put that in my top three. I mean, that it's like it's, I enjoyed that film, but it is. Uh, it, I, I'd be far hard-pressed. you know. I, I like Sixth Sense. It might be up there. Armageddon is definitely not up there.
0: <laughs> I'm trying to think of something else. Oh, What about striking distance? No. <laughs> <laughs> See, to me, this Although, movie was the equivalent of striking distance. Yeah. Uh,
1: the whole nine yards I do like. Unfortunately, the whole nine yards is very much tarnished by the whole ten yards, which is a piece yeah. of oh, shit. That-
2: I don't know how you can make such a great film and then follow it up by such crap.
1: Uh, would you count Sin City as? I was, just, I was just I was
0: just going to say that. I, Sin I love City. him yeah, in definitely. Sin City. I, I thought he was great, I, I thought was great in Sin City. I, I
1: thought he was great in Sin City. I really, really liked him in that. I liked him in uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Um, that I mean, that's more ensemble again as well. But I think he was he was really, really gr- uh, great in that film. I liked him in Red. Wouldn't be my top three. Um, God. What else? I'm trying to remember other films that he he he's been in that I I would consider.
0: Okay, your top two. That works. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bad day when we can't figure out three good Bruce
1: Willis movies. Well, no, there, there's a lot of good ones, but to say yeah. that I I wouldn't put whole the whole nine yards in my top three. I wouldn't put, um, you know, I wouldn't put. Uh, cool. Oh. See, I count that as more supporting. I think that is more, he's not the lead in that by any stretch in that no. imagination. Well, I love that film. That film is a great fucking movie, but it's off the strength of Paul Newman's performance. Yeah. I mean, once again, he he's to me, he's Bruce Willis playing Bruce Willis. He's the asshole character in that movie, and and that worked for me. Um, you know, I like Sixth Sense, but I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd put that in my top three. I like The Siege. I, I, but once again, he's more supporting. I think that's a decent movie. Um, I like the Jackal, um, but he's definitely more supporting in that. Oh, 12 monkeys. Oh, I forgot about 12 monkeys. I really like twelve oh, monkeys. Yeah, yeah. so I
0: forgot about yeah I mean that like,
1: one. yeah, I mean so there's there's a lot of films that he made that you know he's a part of that I really really enjoy. I mean and once again, there's crap. the pretty much the entire look who's talking whatever. Uh, sucked. Uh, Hudson Hawk, not a good film, but I I stuck it out and saw the whole fucking thing, and I've seen it twice. So, kind of, I've never gone back and revisited it. But... Sorry,
2: Christy, we've already uh, reviewed that one.
0: <laughs> Wait, which one did you already review? Hudson Hawk. Oh, you did. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but yeah, uh, but uh, yeah. Was that I a number two get... review? Of course. <laughs> Okay. Oh wait. You know you guys you guys are overlooking a Bruce Willis classic. Beavis and Butthead to America. Come on now. Yeah. I wrote a summary for that last year because I watched oh, it. Oh, did again. you
1: really? That, that does not hold up.
2: <laughs> All right. Well that's it for our review of Patrick's favorite titled Die Hard film, Die Hard Two, Die Harder. Uh, Please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section and for our listeners over on MovieHouseMemory.com. Please rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If you enjoyed today's review, please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, the MHM Podcast Network, where we have many, many more film reviews from yesterday, today, and beyond. Until the next time, I'm Chris number one.
0: I'm Chris number two, Chris Harder. Uh, And I'm Patrick, the only.
2: And we have to get out of here. And you guys are invited.
0: This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at serpentsoundstudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of MHM Podcast Network, Lunchtime Movie Review, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.